there are signs that the founders can be successful, but whether the idea can be successful depends on the timing, right? But in 1988, really, we started Medallion. We got to the point where Medallion was working. And so we decided to take venture out of Renaissance because Medallion was returning 38% net and the venture was only returning 25%, which was still a top decile venture fund, but you know, it wasn't quite the same. I could see right away that some things were going to change the world, email in particular. In fact, one of the Philadelphia Inquirer people quoted me saying, Dr. Morgan believes someday executives will type their own emails. They'll have fewer secretaries. Ha ha ha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think I got it right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. Today, we bring you a living legend. In this episode, I sit down with Howard Morgan, chair and general partner at B Capital, a global investment firm with over $6.3 billion in assets under management and more than 160 portfolio companies. Howard is also a true technology pioneer. He was one of the first people in history to experience the web and had computer number 50 on the ARPANET. His research also contributed to the development of the modern internet. In addition, Howard is also a trailblazer of tech investing, having co-founded firms like Renaissance Technologies with Jim Simmons and First Round Capital with Josh Koppelman. We discuss bringing the internet to Wharton and sending his first email in the early 70s, Lessons for founders and investors after 50 years of investing in tech companies, including the seed rounds of Uber, Square, and Roblox, building a truly global investment firm at B Capital, the impact of Gen AI, and why every company should be leveraging enterprise AI tools today, and a lot more. Howard. Welcome to Fintech Leaders. How are you doing today? Fine, Miguel. Good to be here with you. I'm truly, truly excited. We have someone who, you know, I, I, I'm not going to make the introduction because there, there's so much to say, <laughs> but maybe we, we can start on your end. When asked you kind of to reflect on your career, what are the things that come to mind, you know, that, that, that you have accomplished that, that you're most proud of? Maybe take us through a little bit of your story. Well, the basic part of the story is that I was very lucky. I went to City College in New York here in New York City, and I was a physics major. And I was working in, at the very beginning, 1963, they announced that they had gotten a small debt computer. It was called the desktop computer in those days. The Royal McBee, a company long out of business, they used to make typewriters, made this little computer. And they offered three two-hour lessons in programming. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And I asked my physics professor if I could miss the class for three days. And he said, sure, as long as you do the work. So 
I learned to program and I really enjoyed it. And I started working at what was then the beginning of a computer center, which got a bigger computer the next year, an IBM 7040, as it was called. And my third year, which was my senior year, I was working at the computer center, writing a compiler and other things. And we had Dick Hamming. So there's something very famous in communications called Hamming codes, or the error correcting codes that are used everywhere in, in disk drives, satellite communications. So Dick was a mentor. He would come in and he said to me, what are you doing next year? And I said, well, I got a fellowship for MIT in physics. And he said, well, that's great. I know you'd like to get a Nobel Prize, but it's really hard. He said, but you know, I see you around these computers and you really love what you're doing here. And I said, yes. He said, well, the future is computers. You should be somewhere around computers. And I said, well, it's already February. What am I going to do? Am I going to graduate school? He said, well, I, you should go to operations research because you have mathematics as well. And the two top places for that are Stanford and Cornell. And let me see if I can get you into Cornell. And two weeks later, I had a fellowship to Cornell. And so that completely changed my life and put me on a path that has led to the various things I've been successful at. Uh, part of it is that when you get into a field at the very beginning, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. A lot of the problems are easy ones. And you know, we, we did interesting things. I published the first paper on spelling correction back in 1970. And we did the, the, some of the earlier work on error correcting in general. At Cornell, we wrote a bunch of error correcting computer compilers. And we did that because in those days, you put in a deck of punch cards, you submitted it, and you got it back a day later with a thing that said you had these six errors, and then you had to retry it for the next day. So we, we wrote a compiler that fixed most of those six errors and got you what we thought you meant. And it was a very early application of that. And it worked out really well. So I ended up then staying in the academic world for 15 years teaching at Cornell and at Caltech. And, and at Caltech, I met the ONR people, the Naval Research people, and the DARPA people. And when I left that next year to go to the University of Pennsylvania, they said, why don't you join this thing called the ARPANET? So I had machine number 50 on the ARPANET. I wasn't, it was started in 69. I got on in 72, 73. But even so, there were only a few hundred people at that time maybe a thousand that were on the net. And it was a very interesting community to be part of. And I could see right away that some things were going to change the world, email in particular. In fact, one of the Philadelphia Inquirer people quoted me saying, Dr. Morgan believes someday executives will type their own emails. They'll have fewer secretaries. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know, you know. And I think I got it right. But you know, we, we saw that happening. We were doing research on windowing systems in the 70s. On big database systems, I was a database expert. The biggest databases we had then wouldn't take up a hundredth of your iPhone's memory, but they were still big for the day. And that led me to help work at Durand Corporation to start a company called Interactive Systems. So around that time, 1977-78, I met the other professor who was funding that named Jim Simons. And we became friends and, and colleagues in that in that adventure and then in another venture in 82 he said you know i'm going to leave stony brook and start renaissance technologies would you like to join me so he became the ceo and i became the president when we started renaissance technologies in april of 82 and the rest as they say is history yeah yeah I, so you you were definitely one of the first people to ever experience the internet i want to zoom in on arpanet it's something that you know, probably today people don't talk as much, but it was definitely the precursor of the internet. And you were not only one of the first users, computer number 50, 
but you contributed to it with your research. And I think you brought the internet to Wharton, to Penn. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. <laughs> I was jointly appointed at Penn in the computer science department and in the Wharton School. And the computer science department had turned down being one of the first five schools on the internet in 1969. So when I told the ONR people and DARPA people I was bringing it to Penn, they said, you can't bring it to computer science. They turned us down. We're mad at them. So it was at Wharton. So the, the address was, my email address was Morgan at Wharton. There was no dots yet. That came a little later. And uh, all the computer science people who later then realized they wanted to use it had to have Wharton addresses. So all the addresses for the computer science people were at Wharton, even though they were both <laughs> out of computer science. Yeah. So, so tell us about the ARPANET. When did it click for you? Sounds like email, you saw it probably as a digital version of fax at that point, I imagine. But but what, what, what else was it that made it click for you? Well, that clicked. The second thing that clicked was... We did a system for the Navy, which was called the Decisionating Information System, DAISY. And it had multiple windows on the screen. And so in, in one window, we would using the MIT system for English language to query translation. So very early, very early stuff. And I would then feed that to my database system in another window. And we would feed the results of that to another program at Stanford. So we had basically three different computers on the screen at the same time and interacting with the data as a data pipeline. And it clicked to me that this really was a way of sharing computing resource, uh, but not just not just the compute power itself, but the basically the different kinds of programs people were writing different places and really distributed computing. And we did some papers on optimizing distributed file systems back in the early 70s that, that were used pretty heavily because I was able to use my operations research training in linear programming and discrete optimization. And how would you optimize when you have a distributed file system? How would you optimize when you have a distributed computing system? And that proved very useful as well. But we saw that it could affect business in so many ways. First of all, obviously, word processing was also coming on, text editing. And my PhD thesis at Cornell was the first computer printed pieces accepted at Cornell. We had a big fight, but I did it all on punch cards. I wrote a text editor. And the feature I'm most proud of is that when you're writing a punch card, if you make a mistake, normally you throw out the punch card and you just, but I, what I didn't do that, I, when I knew I made a mistake, I typed the, the, the notch sign, the negative sign. And that meant my text editor then ignored the previous word. So I just keep typing. And even if I made mistakes, and it, at the end, we submitted the thesis and it was printed justified, left and right justified. And the thesis office rejected it. They said, no, they, you have to have this typed. And my thesis advisor in them said to them, are you guys crazy? You know, anytime we find a mistake, it gets fixed and it's fixed forever. If this gets typed, it'll be in, in you know, there'll be all sorts of mistakes introduced. And you better get used to this because this is going to be the future. So after about a month of, of fighting with them, they accepted the computer printed thesis and it was printed on a gigantic line printer, IBM line printer that had upper and lower case. But I saw that word processing obviously was a very important piece of all this, uh, and that that changed a lot of corporate world. Uh, in those days, they had specific dedicated word processing machines from companies like Wang Laboratories and ExxonMobil even had some companies that they created to do that. That email was really crucial. That email was not a digital fax. Email, for most people in their minds, replaced a phone call. It was asynchronous communication. Now. We ran a conference in the mid-70s that said to people, be careful because 
email is a written record and it's going to be used against you in court. But, you know, but people still think of it as a casual. They think of it like a phone call and it's not really there. But it, unfortunately, as so many people have found out, it, it's not everyone listens. Not everyone listens, but that was a huge change. I mean, and we still have the lawyers and all my companies telling people, don't put that in an email, <laughs> you know, but they do because it's going to be nor a text message or, a, you know, text messaging obviously came much later. I would say that we realized that in, in the late 70s, pretty much everything that happened up to the iPhone, that is to say, we knew that there would be an explosion in people connecting. And in the, the early 80s, when the NSF net started, and then the NSF net got connected to the the ARPANET. And remember, the internet protocol was there pretty early. So the ARPA protocol was first, but pretty soon there were other local networks at some of the big sites like Stanford, like SRI. And so they had to internetwork between those two networks. And that created the TCP IP, the internet protocol, the, the transmission control protocol, the internet protocol between networks. And so that was fairly early. And that was crucial because it meant that you could develop your own networks and then talk to the internet through them. And then NSFNet opened up the network to many, many more universities and places. And then eventually we saw AOL joining in and, and some other players to get the public onto the internet. Our switching gears a little bit, you, you mentioned Jane Simmons. Jane Simmons, you, 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 were, you were a friend back then, and then you, you guys started Renaissance Technology. I was actually... You know, I was reading David Rubinstein's book, How to Invest, and he has a chapter about Rentech. And the amazing part is the medallion fund, the average net returns have been exceeding over 40% for more than 30 years. What, what, you know, what, what you is want the secret? You want the secret? I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants the secret. And, you know, Look, the rent the medallion fund. So when we started Rentech in 82, we had $70 million. Half was in quant fund investing. Half was in venture. By night, we were working towards getting medallion working. And I, I was work, helping them with databases and they were doing algorithms, other stuff. But I was doing a lot of venture investing as well. And we invested in you know, some interesting companies. And we had a company called Silink, which had the RSA, the Diffie-Hillman patents for for. So there's, and is the basis for the encryption of the SWIFT network, for example, today. But in 1988, really, we started Medallion. We got to the point where Medallion was working. And so we decided to take venture out of Renaissance because Medallion was returning 38% net and the venture was only returning 25%, which was still a top decile venture fund, but you know, <laughs> wasn't quite the same. So we took it out of Renaissance and I continued with my office next door to Jim's. I'm still, I saw him last week. I'm, we're still good friends and continued venture investing. But with Medallion, there are signals and algorithms that are looked at. There are some signals that are still there from 35 years ago, 30 plus years ago. And there are new signals added every month. The model gets changed every month. But what distinguishes Renaissance is that starting in 1978, Jim and a team out in, in the Stony Brook area started collecting tick-by-tick -tick data for many, many instruments. So Renaissance now has a 45-year tick-by-tick database, and no one else has that data. And if you're doing simulations and, and you want to find simulations in regimes that are very different than the last eight years, no one else has that data. It lets them do a much better job. The other thing that, and the, the, I'm saying things that have been publicly said, although they're not very widely said, 
is that Medallion didn't just predict the price point, it predicted the trajectory. So for example, at one point, it's not that way anymore, of course, but at one point, it would predict the two-day trajectory of each of the 25 instruments it was trading every 20 seconds. Now, why is trajectory important? Well, I don't know, gold is trading, or, or let's see here, Bitcoin is trading at $27,538 right now. And if I told you that a year from today, Bitcoin is going to be trading at $50,000, you have several choices. One, you can mortgage the farm and put everything into Bitcoin, right? And if Bitcoin goes from 27000 to 37 to 47 to 50, you'll be great. But if it goes from 27000 to 5000 you'll be wiped out. And if it goes from 27000 to 75000 you'll have given up a big chunk of the game. So understanding the tra- even though we're exactly right in a year from today, it's 50000 you know, it, it, the trajectory is important. And very few people look at trajectory. And Renaissance does look at the trajectory. And they have this huge source of data. And they have 100 PhDs in statisticians, computer scientists, physicists, astrophysicists, people who know nothing about the market, but are really good at time series. So you clearly were more interested on the venture side, because that's where you, yes. where you later cut your teeth. Were you recruited by other hedge funds? No, not really. I mean, I never, I, that never interested me. First of all, Renaissance has insanely tight NDAs and non-competes, and they're appropriate, in fact, and they enforce them rigorously. So that really never crossed my mind. You know, much later, I sort of, in the last seven or eight years, I seeded a bunch of quant funds, but I, I can't tell them any Renaissance secrets. First of all, they've changed by now, many of them. Uh, I'm still an investor in, in Renaissance's funds. So I, I wasn't, but I was much more interested in helping build companies in the venture space. And I, I've done that sort of continuously from about 1977, when I was still a professor and funding a company that started out of my research, which went public called HDS, which built Windows terminals, all the way you know through today. So I still could you know do that, and, I, and that's what I love. Because when you leave academia and you go into venture, you're basically doing the same job. You're nurturing young people with great ideas. Now, in one case, you get a PhD thesis and maybe a 10-year time horizon. In the other case, you get a product and maybe a five-year time horizon. But the job is really making those people see their ideas work out really well. I think you're the first person to help me understand that comparison. And and I, I see the parallels. So prior to your B Capital role, which we're going to talk about in a second, you were also one of the co-founders of First Round Capital. And I think any entrepreneur who's, who's getting ready to launch a company knows about it, right? And I was just looking at some data. I was impressed by, I'm impressed by the whole firm, but I was impressed by Fund2, which just to name top four companies, you have Uber, Square, now Block, Roblox, and then one that's maybe less known to people is called Double Verify with a 5 billion market cap. And the other ones, they add up to over 150 billion in current market cap. So I want to know, why <laughs> Why do you think you were successful at first? Was it that you caught lighting in a bottle at a time when when that was possible, kind of like going back to your early internet days, you got to be early, or can anyone achieve that kind of success in venture? 
at any point in time and you're just very, very good? Well, a couple of things. So in, in 92, with Jim and my own money, we funded a company called Infinautics and one of the co-founders was Josh Koppelman. So I worked with Josh and I was very active there. I actually did some design the first databases there. Then in 98, Josh started Half.com, which I also funded and which Infinautics actually owned a piece of. And that did very well and got sold to eBay for quite a lot in the height of the bubble. It became the basis for Buy It Now, among other things. And Josh did not want to, and his wife didn't want to live in the Bay Area, so he wouldn't move. So he decided to stay, come back to stay in Philadelphia, where half was. And I have had my house in Philadelphia as well as New York. And he said to me, you know, we should do some angel investing. And of course, he had been doing some, I had been doing some. I had helped David Rose start the New York Angels. So we did some angel investing. And then about a year and a half later, in, in late 04, he said, you know, I think there's room for a seed stage fund. There have been no seed stage funds, and there weren't any at, at that point. So we decided, we said, we'll try it for a year. So we created a $7 million seed stage fund called First Round Capital One. It, it did very well. We actually built a companion fund to do follow-on investing. So, And one of the companies in that was a company called StumbleUpon, which also got sold to eBay, founded by a Calgary native named Garrett Camp, who we moved to San Francisco. So then we did another year of that. And by year three, we said, okay, well, this is going to be real. So let's make a real fund. So we called that first round capital two. And we did go to Dave Swenson at Yale, who was sort of the dean of venture investing, who said to us, look, I like you guys. You know, you've got age and experience with Howard. You've got, you know, a lot of operating experience with Josh and some good investing experience as well. He said, I'll give you $20 million. That won't move my needle because... You know, I, yeah, I've got a $20 billion endowment, but uh, well, let's try it. Well, you know, a couple of things happened in that fund. We did 70 companies. And as you point out, today's market cap is about $150 billion. It's, It was higher because Uber went out at 65, Robux went out at 85. So those two alone were 140 and then Square and Double Verified. Look, it, 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 luck plays a role, clearly, right? You know, to have both Uber and Roblox in the same fund was kind of insane, Princeton and Yale each got back around a billion dollars. It moved their needle, both of them. <laughs> they both gave us awards of various guys and so on. But what it was was that we were very simpatico with its founders. Josh had founded a couple of companies. I had actually founded Franklin Electronic Publishers. So we knew what the founder journey was. And we started out very early focusing on how could we help the founders help one another. So not just the traditional venture of Okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, an advisor of this guy. But we created networks of the founders so that when a CEO had a question, he or she could put it out on our we initially a Yahoo group later on, the special software, and it would be seen and answered very quickly. And we had because we had so many companies, we had about 150 companies, you got answers very quickly. So a lot of other venture firms at the time tried platforms, but they had 20 companies and you know, it wasn't enough to create the network effect. Ours did. So if you were a CTO of a, of a six-person company, all of a sudden we gave you a peer group of 100 CTOs. And if you said, gee, should I be using Node.js or this other framework, you'd get six answers back, You know, four of which would say, yeah, we've been using it. It's great. You should use it. Someone else say, here are the problems with it. So we allowed this, the, the, um, the, the entrepreneurs to help one another as well as first round having a team to help them. And that, I think, was a big piece of the, both the success of the companies but also the founders telling their friends who are starting companies, go to first round. They're, they're the right place to, 
to fund. And if, if they'll fund you, you're, you're in great shape. What I like, there was a strategy behind what you were doing. You were very delivered. Yes. <laughs> and then the magic happened after that, of course. By the way, part of the strategy was if you made us a lot of money, you became part of our blank check club. So if we made a lot of money with you, you got, we promised you in those days, you'd get a quarter million dollars in a desk to start whatever your next thing is. So one of the first players with that was Garrett Camp, who came into our San Francisco office in, in 2009 and after he had uh, we, uh, left eBay for after the stumble upon sale a year later. And we said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to start this thing. I'm calling it Uber Cab, and it's going to help you call black cars in San Francisco. And we said, how big is that market? And he said, well, the, I don't know. He said, we looked at it about $100 million a year in San Francisco. Four years later, Uber was doing $500 million a year in San Francisco alone because it created new markets. And you know, three months after Gary started, he brought in Travis, which accelerated the growth rate and growth path. But Travis was the founder and, and the product designer and so on, and still, and still I think, chairman or, or on the board. But that was because we believed in the entrepreneurs that we, that we were successful with. And we did that several other times with Aaron Passer from Mint, with Nat and Zach from originally Invite Media. They did Flatiron Health later on, which it was another big, big win for first round. The blocks slash square sorties is a little more complicated. We invested in Odeo, which was a podcasting company, speaking of podcasts. <laughs> and it was started by Ev Williams, Biz Stone, and Jack Dorsey. And they came to us about, I don't know, two, three months later and said, you know, we just heard Apple's going to announce free podcasting software that will just, you know, blow us out of the water. So here's your money back. And they gave everyone the money back and said, but we'll let you invest in our next deal. So the next deal was Twitter. But they came to us with Twitter at a 20 million valuation. And Josh and I had a rule of not doing more than 10 at that time. So we didn't do Twitter. I was lucky enough to be an NLP in Union Square Ventures, which did do Twitter, but so I still benefited. But, but then a couple of years later, Jack came to us with Square at an even higher valuation, and we said, we've learned our lesson. We'll do Square. <laughs> so we did Square, and we made a 25X or something on Square. So it was, it was, it was very worthwhile. And it happened to be in the same fund, as you say, as, as Roblox. Uh, Roblox was an even worse, better story. We turned Roblox down. Chris Fralick brought it to us, our partner. And Chris, a few weeks later, or a month, two later, I forget exactly how long, said, you know, you made a mistake. I'm bringing my eight-year-old son in to pitch you on it. So he brought Max, who was at the time eight years old. Max pitched us on Roblox. We got to see the excitement that the kid had and what he could do with it. And we said, okay, we'll do Roblox. And we did Roblox. So, you know, it's an interesting business. It's a lot of luck, serendipity. But, you know, we were very intentional about a lot of things we did to try to help the companies along and the founders. That's incredible. And it sounds like what you're telling us is that it's good to avoid absolutes in venture. Yes. <laughs> because had you given a blank check only to the founders that made you money, then, you know, block would not have happened, right? Because right. they did not, they, they returned the money to you. Exactly. Right? Uh, what have you learned about talking to founders when they're at the seed stage and then the ones that you've seen kind of break out and become multi-billion dollar companies. Some people say they can tell, you know, when, when they meet a few. Can you really tell? I wish I could tell. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, that there are signs that the founders can be successful, but whether the idea can be successful depends on the timing, right? 
you know, I, I've been involved with Idea Lab since the very beginning with Bill Gross. And Bill Gross has amazing ideas, and many of them are too early. Remember, I have a blog, which I used to write, called waytooearly.com, because I've made my money investing at two stages, too early and way too early. And at Idea Lab, a number of the ideas we had in the late 90s were way too early. They're all great companies today, but not the ones we built, but later ones that were built to do the same thing at a time when instead of you know 20 million people on 56K dial-up, you have 5 billion people on always on broadband. So the, you know, the markets are different. Other things you can do are very different. And you know, e-tailing, it was, was one of those things. We had e-toys, which did not do, which did great. It went public at twice the value of Toys R Us, but crashed, crashed and burned. So there were, there were a lot of great ideas that were just too early. So that's one thing. So you might see the founder, and, and I, I get excited about the idea, but I realize it's a little bit early. The other thing is to make sure the founders have the passion to not just sell the investors, but to sell great employees, great partners for them, and then to sell the customers as well. And the passionate founders, by and large, do better than the, the more sort of analytical, cold-hearted founders, I would say. And the other thing we look for in a founder is persistence. Will they stick it out when things are not going well? You know, well, will they put in the 24-hour days that are needed occasionally? Not all, you know, when there's a setback in order to get over that, or will they run and hide? So, you know, the, the key thing we want all of our founders to do is give us the bad news first and let us see if we can help you with it and, and help you out of it. And don't let it, don't let it stop you. Just keep going, but make sure you do it wisely. Yeah, that's certainly a topic I think about a lot. We think about a lot in my company, talking to early stage founders. So Howard, I I want to talk a little bit about B Capital because you went from early and way too early at front and on your own to more on the later side at B Capital. You, you partnered with Eduardo Sabarin, one of the co-founders of Facebook, and Ranj Ganguly, who Raj has actually been a guest on my past podcast, my previous podcast, back when I was at, at Wharton. So two amazing individuals. Tell us a bit about B Capital. Sure. Well, when I started first round with Josh, I was 60 years old. And I said to Josh, "Let's. I'll do 10 years because you know at that point, I'll be 70 and you want to have the ability to bring in young people and so on. And not to be ageist because I'm still obviously going strong. And so in year eight or so, I said, you know, let's... Let's figure out a, a glide path out of here, which we did. And then I published a piece on generational transition, which is very important for venture funds, gets screwed up by a lot of them, and stepped back. And I got a lot of emails from seed stage funds saying, would you join my seed fund? And the answer was no. I mean, I, first of all, I'm still an advisor first round. I'm still a huge LP, a GP in some of the earlier funds. So the answer is absolutely not. And, and then Raj called me up and said uh, he was coming to New York with Edward. And they had a, a new idea, and I would like to hear it. So I said, fine, I'll give you a half hour. And they came to New York, and three hours later, I said, look, I will be a big LP. And they said, no, no, we want you to help us build this. What we want you to do is to share it and help us make new mistakes, but not make the mistakes you made building Renaissance and Ideal App in first round, because I'm sure there were mistakes in those. And I said, absolutely. So that's what I've done. And, so the, the, and the attraction to the capital were a couple. First of all, it was focused on B2B, as opposed to a lot of the B2C that we did at first round. And B2B was where I had done a lot of work at when I was an academic. Secondly, it was global. 
with headquarters in Singapore and LA and, and as well as India and New York and San Francisco. And I really liked the global idea. I wanted to do some travel as well. And then thirdly, it was partnered with BCG, the Boston Consulting Group. And it's a very tight partnership with BCG so that even though we have a platform team to help our companies, we also can tap the 20,000 BCG people around the world. And that's been extremely valuable. So I said I would uh, give them initially 20% of my time that it's now gone up to a third of my time. And the reason it's gone up to a third is that five years later, a- after raising our our third fund, which was, so we, our first fund was $360 million, then we had an $800 million fund and an opportunity fund. And then we raised $2.1 billion, including a, a chunk for healthcare, a chunk for China. I agreed that we should start an early stage fund. It's called the Ascent Fund. So when we started the Ascent Fund too, I agreed I'd put in some more time to help on the investment committee there and do a few investments. Mostly the team does uh, everything. And it's been been great. We have about six and a half billion under management in total right now, maybe seven growing still. We're raising Ascent Fund three at some point and other later funds. But what's been great about it is training a lot of new people and also putting in the systems and procedures from day one that have helped us to move much more quickly than other venture funds to build more quickly. We have 120 people around the world now, offices in Beijing, Hong Kong, Jakarta, Singapore, Bangalore, Mumbai, Delhi, Miami, New York, LA, San Francisco. So it's a big, big operation and, and it's been very rewarding. And we'll see how the results are because it's been early. But I do think that, for example, we started on Zoom in 2016, our investment committee meetings, because we're a global fund, are typically at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Singapore time. And at those times, most everybody's at home. So when COVID hit, there was no change. Everybody was still at home. They were still on the same call at the same time. The only difference was we couldn't meet the entrepreneurs in person. But as far as interacting with each other, a lot of that interaction globally was on Zoom anyway. So we were very prepared for that. And first round had been in Zoom culture because we had Philadelphia, New York, and San Francisco offices. So we had been on video conferencing since probably 2008, maybe even earlier when we opened our San Francisco office in 2006. And we went through every conferencing system you could try you know, at the time, WebEx and Skype and uh, a whole bunch of smaller ones, and then eventually settled on Zoom. So when COVID hit, you did not skip a beat. And then so... I love anything that's global. I grew up all over the world. I, I love global companies. I admire the global investing. Has it gotten, you, you mentioned offices and, you know, in, in a lot of places, especially across Asia, has it gotten harder, you know, inevitably harder to invest in, in places like China or, or? Well, China, I mean, the geopolitical issues in China are very tricky right now. You have to be very careful. And we have LPs, uh, in, particularly in the U.S., LPs who are concerned about investing in China, and rightly so. I mean, there, there's clearly competition between U.S. and China in a lot of areas. There's also cooperation in a lot of areas. And so we're, we're trying to limit any investing we do there to those cooperative areas. Climate, for example, China's been a leader in that. Things that are completely non-defense related, that we have an, some investments in AI drug discovery. If we find cures for cancer, it doesn't matter whether you find them in China or in San Francisco, they can help the whole world. And a lot of those companies, even the Chinese ones, are global. They have operations all over the world. But it's a, we're, a little, we're a little cautious in China. 
And I imagine on the flip side, it probably has gotten easier at least to get access to the best entrepreneurs because there's less people investing globally. I think that we pride ourselves in telling companies that we can really help them take them global. So if we find a great company in India, we can, and with BCG's help, get them customers all over the world very quickly. Uh, one of our companies, one of our early companies is called Icertis. It spun out of Azure, really. It was an entrepreneur who was running a piece of Azure. And whenever Azure went down for an hour or two hours or three hours, they had to look at all the contracts and figure out who did they owe what, because they had SLAs in all the contracts. And it was a nightmare. So he built a system, and then he realized that could be an interesting SaaS product. So Icertis is now a company with a couple of hundred million a year in revenue, valued in a couple of billion dollars. And all of the team was in Bangalore that built it. Some of the executives were in Seattle. And they were doing really well. And then they said, you know, we'd like to get some European clients. So we went to BCG and within three months, they had 12 clients in Europe because they had great introductions. And BCG knew, knew that the company's products were solid and we can really help companies grow. And that's and we love global companies. And we're one of very few funds that invest globally. There are a lot of funds. Sequoia, for example, had Sequoia China, Sequoia India, Sequoia US, but they've broken those apart. Even Lightspeed, which is a great investor, has Lightspeed India, which we co-invest with a lot, and Excel has Excel India. But those do not do global investing. They only invest locally. We're one of the very few firms that actually invest globally. Yeah. I want to spend some time before we run out of time talking about the recent wave of AI, because you've gone from seeing the birth of the internet, playing around with the first emails, to now, I'm sure you're a very active user of ChatGPT and, and all these other tools. I know I am. What's your reflection, your impression of everything that's going on now? So, yes, I am a user of ChatGPT and of Bard and of Anthropic. And those are great. And we're not going to invest in those companies because they're too late in valuation. We are investing in, and we have one actually in China that we're doing in our China fund, which is Baichuan, which is a, a large language model. But in general, we're trying to find companies that have a proprietary set of data to train on, that they can do a vertical AI thing and use that proprietary data and be a win. Because AI is going to pervade everything. There's no question about that. And generative AI in particular offers tremendous help to people, tremendous interface help. We've been using some of those tools internally where we get a 40-page investment report you know, proposal from our team. And now instead of peppering them with questions, you know, for an hour, you, you go to one of the large language model things and we say, and we pepper it with the questions on that data and it does a much better job. And we've trained it in a, in a sandbox way so that data is not out in the rest of the world, but it's able to, if we want to say, can you tell us about their gross margin growth over the next three years? We get in it, you know, it shows you a quick look at that. You know, what, what are their unit economics like? And you can ask them very, very freeform questions and it makes it much easier to do analysis. We're also looking at it for intelligence gathering, if you will, on sourcing, right? You know, if we have an area that we're interested in, tell us uh, what, what companies do, are in India are doing X. And, you know, you get a sense of that. Looking for competitive stuff is very easy using the large language models. But companies that we'll invest in, every company is using it in some way. So you should, if your customer support isn't using Gen AI, if your programming engineers are not using, you know, the Copilot, 
there's something wrong, right? So we, that's a filter for us, if you will. Yeah. Where do you think it's going? I mean, sounds like you think that the boat has sailed, that is gone for a lot of these huge companies like OpenAI and Tropic, but there's still going to be large players coming up in the world of AI. There'll be large players coming up in the application space. So, you know, if you if you look in general, you know, there's sort of an operating systems player, and then there's a middlewares players, and then there's the application layers. And it's the application layers that create very big companies. And that's what we're, we're mostly focused on that layer. There are a few middleware things. We have companies where in our portfolio already, like Labelbox and Data Robot, that help in labeling and data and getting data ready for these map models to use. And those have grown very nicely over the last couple of years. It's not so much that the boat is sailed, it's that you need a, a Insight-like or a Sequoia-like size fund or SoftBank to make meaningful investments in those companies. And I'm sure that there will be some trillion-dollar AI foundation companies. But my own feeling is that Microsoft is going to win big. Google will continue to win big. And I think Meta will continue to win big because they are starting to use AI, not just in Facebook, but in Instagram. We'll see it in, in WhatsApp in some ways and really to help people. And we're going to see user interfaces change over the next five years. If you go back into the 90s, Bill Gates wrote a book called The Road Ahead. And in that book, he said, the natural interface for humans is voice. And, you know, we've made some strides. I mean, I have how many Alexa devices in my house and I've got what's her name on my phone. I don't want to say it because it'll wake up. <laughs> and, but we haven't really made it the, the interface of choice, particularly for commercial users, you know, enterprise users. But I think it will become that. So that's an area where Gen AI has made a huge and can have a huge impact. Howard, before I let you go, I have two quick questions. Number one, since you started investing in founders, how has the typical entrepreneur changed, you know, in the last few decades and what remains the same? <laughs> They've gotten younger. I would say that when we first started in this, they were not college students who hadn't graduated like the Teal Fellows uh, or, even, or just graduated like the dorm room fund companies that first round started, uh, helped start. So they've gotten a bit younger. It's, it's now true that anyone can be an entrepreneur. So that's changed. Secondly, there's a lot more entrepreneurial education out there. So a lot more of the entrepreneurs start their companies after having taken courses that tell them a little bit about finance and a little bit about marketing. They don't have an MBA necessarily, but their entrepreneurship courses in college have given them a big leg up over somebody starting from scratch. So that's been a, a big change. The other big change, obviously, is diversity. I'm a, an LP in 28 female and African-American-led funds. And those funds are finding entrepreneurs that I would not have found with my own networks. So we're seeing all of that happening, and that's been a real difference. And the other thing that's changed, in 2012, essentially all the unicorns were in the Bay Area. In 2021, only 20% were in the Bay Area. You know, this is happening everywhere. China has a big chunk of them, of course, but you know, New York and Austin and Chicago and, and LA. And so you're seeing a much more democratic view of where entrepreneurs are, who entrepreneurs are, and they're a little younger than they used to be. Howard, I, I see a lot of books behind you. Yes. Is there one or two that are your favorites and any books you'd recommend? Well, aside from the ones I've written with the entrepreneurial marketing uh, books, 
which are you can get on Amazon or using a lot of MBA programs. I wrote with uh, my colleague, Len Lotus from, from Wharton. Uh, the book I give everybody is Daniel Borston, The Discoverers. It's a book he wrote many years ago. It talks about human beings, how we discovered space and time and you know, sort of chemistry and science and, and how humans are driven to discover new things and do it. And I, it's a great book. It's called The Discoverers by Daniel Burston. And I highly recommend it to everybody. I'm going to order it immediately after. <laughs> sure. So, Howard, thanks for taking the time. This has been fascinating. I'm definitely, you know, I'm sure people are going to truly, truly enjoy this. And thanks for all your contributions to our society, because uh, there are too many to list. Thank you, Miguel. I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this amazing episode with Howard Morgan from B Capital. It's probably one of my all-time favorites. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.